from WHQR Public Media, this is the Newsroom. I'm Ben Schockman. Thanks for joining us. On today's show, my colleague Rachel Keith joins us with the latest from New Hanover County Schools' Turnaround Task Force. This is a group of school board members and other local leaders who have dedicated almost a year to trying to improve the performance at New Hanover County's lowest performing schools. Now, on today's show, we're going to talk about some of the ideas that have taken hold and are actually moving forward as realities thanks to the task force's work. We're also going to look at the challenge that public schools in our region face as they compete financially with charter schools and private schools. Plus, we'll hear Rachel Keith's conversation with two members of Student Voice, an organization stood up by the school board to help bring a student perspective to thorny issues that the district is dealing with. All right, Rachel Keith, thanks for being here. Thank you. Okay, so for people who have not been following the story as you have, we're talking about the Turnaround Task Force. Give us a little recap of your experience following the story over almost a year. Yes, so the district originally had 12 low-performing schools, and those low-performing metrics are a result of NCDPI's school report card grades, and then if schools are meeting growth or not. And so now they only have seven from recent testing data that came out. So that's why the task force was created, is what can we do to help these low-performing schools? And from what data shows is that a lot of the low-performing schools are in high-poverty neighborhoods. And wealth is concentrated in certain parts of the district, and some parts of the district we have our lower socioeconomic families. So there is this separation in New Hanover County schools. So one of the members of the turnaround task force that we have spent a lot of time talking about, and we've met with him many times to talk about the task force work, is Scott Wisnett. He was a longtime Star News reporter. He worked for New Hanover Regional Medical Center. So he knows this community really well. He knows the schools really well. And here's what he had to say about where the task force is at and what they're facing. It should surprise no one that the top 10 performing elementary schools are also the 10 with the lowest rates of free reduced lunch. It's a one, almost a one-to-one correlation. This is a poverty story. This is not a racial story. It's not a you know, political, it is a poverty story. When you have a school full of parents without means, you get low performance. That's the cycle we're here to break, somehow. So when Scott says this is not a racial story, he means something very specific by that. And we've had a lot of nuanced conversations about that. But what it really means at bottom is that just by innately by being black or Hispanic or non-white, it doesn't mean you're going to be a low-performing student. It just means that when you look at who is poor in New Hanover County specifically, we see a, a disproportionate ratio of black and brown people. But the issues are being caused by poverty. Really quickly, if you walk through someone's life from birth through their school experience and you look at what ACEs or adverse childhood experiences they're going to deal with from birth, whether that's only having one parent or being food insecure or having domestic violence or drug use in the house, living in a community where there's violence, all of those things are going to add layer and layer of stress to that student, and that's causing difficulty paying attention. That's causing bad behavior. That's a reaction to those ACEs. So this is the stuff, Rachel, that you've gotten into in great detail in a series, both on past task force meetings and on ACEs. But that's what Scott's talking about is 
this is a story about socioeconomic inequality and all of the stress that comes along with it. Right. And he said in the past that race is invariably mixed up in the poverty story. And even Matthew Cropper of Cropper GIS He is a consultant that looked at the district schools because some of the lower socioeconomic schools um, where those families go to, those are under-enrolled. But then the district does have significant overcrowding in other schools, especially ones that district families want to go to. But what he said during this meeting when he was presenting to the board and the county commissioners, they were both together in January, he advised with the next round of redistricting that they go through that the schools need to be, quote, as demographically diverse as possible. And that means that there's racial balance in the district. But we know that right now there is a lot of imbalance. And Ben, the question is, and the question for the listeners, is there the will to do what Matthew Cropper says? Yeah. And we could do a whole another show and we probably will do a whole another show about the coming battle over redistricting. But the bottom line is, When we see concentrations of black and brown students, that's also a concentration of families that are dealing with poverty. And that's why we're seeing the issues. And it's whether or not, like you said, there is the political will to actually desegregate and bring some economic equity to the demographics of our schools. So put a pin in that. We will have a lot more to say about that. And one of the things I want to get to is... Rachel, the task force was talking about some of the boots on ground stuff they've been doing, specifically looking at Forest Hills, which is a school that deals with a lot of families who are in poverty. So what was going on there? The district moved Diego Lee Hockey from Sunset Park Elementary, and I have reporting with him. And he has had a lot of success at that school in turning it around, right? So what they did was there was a high need at Forest Hills to change the culture there. So what happened at this task force meeting, it was the fifth one, is that they were doing an update. Like, how is Diego Lee Hockey doing at Forest Hills? So this is Stephanie Walker, board member and task force leader on visiting the school last month. Well, last time I went, I remember I was there in the principal's office and every five minutes that walking was going off. But when we were there, I don't think it went off one time. It definitely makes a difference when you set a culture in, in a school and you feel supported. He, he looks at it and he's already said this to us before, like he's part of a team and he can't do what he does without them. So what she was saying is the walkie, right? The administrators carry. It, last time before Lee Hockey was there, it was going off constantly. They were putting out fires all day. But it looks like that didn't go off when they were there. And everything was kind of operating seamlessly. The kids seemed happy. The staff seemed happy. And then she addresses the issue that he always gives credit back to his staff. I can't do what I do without a good staff that is behind me. Yeah, and I would encourage people to go back and listen to some of your past reporting about how the culture of a school impacts their teacher's ability to teach and to handle some of the behavioral issues that are caused or aggravated by ACEs. So by moving Principal Lee Hockey from a school where he'd kind of stabilized things to Forest Hills where things needed, they needed some moral support. So part of this, when we're talking about teachers and we're talking about students, part of it's about ACEs, part of it's about resources, part of it's about funding, but part of it is about leadership. And we are going to hear from Stephanie Craybill. She is a board member and she joined this task force for this meeting. And she actually has been 
volunteering to read to students at Forest Hills. This is her second year, and this year she took part in the task force's initiative of first grade reading buddies. So this is her visiting the school and being in one of the classrooms, and she's dealing with a one little girl who got upset during an assignment, and she saw how the school supported her. And this one little girl was so frustrated and just was starting to have a meltdown. But the teacher just calmly made a phone call and the interventionist came in, sat down at our table and was able to, you know, calm this young lady and we were able to continue. So, and, but it was all so seamless that, not like it had already been practiced, but it was, that was built into their culture. And so she is talking about this interventionist, and this is what I hear from teachers a lot. Sometimes they can't totally stop the classroom to address one student's behavior, so they have this network of support so that the teacher can continue to teach, and it's not as disruptive. And again, that's what Lee Hockey said. This is what the teachers said. They need a lot of staff to do this type of work. Yeah, and that's something we've heard from board member Stephanie Walker, board member Stephanie Craybill, from a lot of other people who are on this task force, is that one of the issues teachers deal with is this kind of nuclear chain reaction event where one student will have an emotional issue or a behavioral issue, and that just sets off the whole classroom. And then the teacher loses control. That's no fault of theirs. It's just at a certain point, there's only so many kids you can control, and it gets very difficult. So that interventionist is a crucial part of managing a school like that. And this was interesting, Stephanie Craybill said, and this is part of the, the Reading Buddy program, is that the kids are so excited when adults from the community come in to help support them. Principals have been asking the community to come in and volunteer. A lot of times they get upset with coverage that the school district gets, but they say, come on in, see what it's like. And here's Craybill talking about that experience. The kids love it. They when you come back, they're ready to, what are you bringing us this time? You know, what book are you going to read? And love to ask questions, you know, and make the comments on, you know, like, oh, look at your socks today. And I'm like, oh, yeah, aren't you like these? No. I'm like, okay. <laughs> this is something we've talked about elsewhere. We'll have links to this reporting, but it is important to have volunteers. It is one of the things that shows the difference sometimes between schools that are dealing with more poverty or less poverty is that oftentimes parents and families that aren't struggling with poverty have more time to volunteer. And so it's just it's a crucial part of what's going on in these schools. All right, let's move on, though, because the task force has done more than just get some anecdotal stories and, and made visits They're They're now getting into some solutions that they think have legs. That's right. So let's start with Mario Jeter of Communities and Schools, they just got a $3.2 million grant from the new Hanover Endowment. And part of this grant was to continue on their summer program that they host called the Freedom Schools, and they're going to expand that. And then they're also going to start this full community service model. Some of that is seed money for our full-service community school model that will hopefully be implemented at either Freeman or Holly Shelter. And we do have the announcement that it is going to be Freeman, and that is going to start next fall. And you might be asking, what does that entail? And right now, it's going to be after-school tutors. It's going to be additional behavior support. Um, what I was told from CIS is that they're just in the planning stages. And this is interesting because at the beginning of the task force, Mario said that they were applying for a Department of Education grant for this full community service model. And again, that is a school that 
is struggling with student populations that have high rates of poverty, and they need to bring in more services for those kids and their families. And I will also say, if you don't know anything about the Freedom Schools, we'll have a link to friend of the show, Kevin Mowers, reporting on this from, I think, two summers ago. Um, It's a great program. It basically is designed to help stop what's called the summer slide. What Mario said is that Unfortunately, they did not get the federal grant, but they're hoping when he said seed money is that they can show that it's working and that potentially in the future that the Department of Education will fund them because they've already shown that it works. And again, he said it was pretty competitive. There were 300 applicants for that grant and only 11 schools in the nation got them. As we know from covering the philanthropic world here locally, sometimes you need a grant to get a grant. That's correct. All right. So moving on, another thing that Scott Wisnant brought up, an idea, is kind of like a PTA on steroids. Tell me a little bit about this idea. The members are talking in this task force about how do we help teachers? We need to know. And Scott is taking this very seriously. He and Stephanie Walker and Elizabeth Redenbaugh, she is the director of development at Coastal Horizons. They are trying to figure out innovative ways to help teachers. And here's one of them. You've got to make teachers' lives better, particularly at these high-poverty schools. Now, one thing is stipends. I just want to pull that out. Money talks. We can talk about a lot of things make your lives better, but money, money ultimately talks. How do we make teachers' lives better? What if you're a teacher and somebody washed your car while you were at work? Or somebody changed the oil right there in the parking lot? What if somebody came and mowed the yard for you? What if somebody did your taxes for you at almost no cost? And this idea has legs. It's called the Friends of Public Schools, and the Board of Communities and Schools has allowed the Friends of Public Schools to live within their 501c3. So they are hoping that they will eventually get potentially a grant from the endowment to start doing some of these concierge services for teachers or provide stipends. They gave a number up to $10,000. They're also talking about, you referenced this, a global PTA. We've talked about this with the task force. Some of the schools in the lower income neighborhoods, they don't have a PTA, so they can't do teacher lunches. They can't do extra tutoring. They can't do teacher appreciation like some of the other schools can because they have a strong PTA. Scott even talked about having favorable interest rates, helping to broker that for teachers. So they're really trying to make teachers' lives better when they are working in these really hard circumstances. Absolutely, because we know that teachers are already up against it when it comes to housing costs. This is a difficult job no matter where you are, but specifically that the housing burden makes it tough. And these are, as we've talked about in past episodes about the task force, this is a challenging place to teach in some place like Rachel Freeman or Forest Hills. It's work that these teachers are passionate about, but it is tough. So taking the edge off any way they can is a way to sort of help those teachers. And being part of the community and schools nonprofit means that they don't have to wait two years, which is what the endowment asks for a new nonprofit. So there's already an established entity that can take the grant. So that's why being under that umbrella is important. Okay, these are ideas that have legs, but there are still some problems left for the task force to tackle. Let's get into that. Yes. So from prior reporting, we know that there's a hiring freeze right now in New Hanover County Schools. Dr. Faust, the superintendent, has said that they have a $10 million budget hole in their fund balance, and that's due to stagnating, declining enrollments because ESSER funds, the federal COVID relief funds, are drying up. And 
a couple of years ago, they had to drain down some of their fund balance to provide the teachers with that local stipend. So there's a lot of issues at play here, but we know from hearing from teachers, they still need more support. They're seeing significant cuts already, they say, that they find disturbing, but we know in this next budget cycle, it sounds like it's going to get even tougher. Here's Stephanie Walker telling that to the task force. Uh, we learned that we need to find ways to support staff. That's a big deal. Teachers feel, they explained that the, the cuts that were the one-time funding, but the reduced resources are still felt by teachers. And I will also say after our budget brief last week, we're in for even more cuts. I'm looking at y'all board members that we were all a little bit shocked to hear that. And so we know that the state and we'll see what the county commission does. I mean, they're not providing a huge additional budget for the local schools. So it is a reality that we all have to deal with in this community. Absolutely. And, you know, when it comes to the funding, this is a very complicated process. But the short version is the school basically gets its funding based on the number of students that are in the building. So for every student, there's a certain amount. The county gives a certain amount. The state gives a certain amount. And imagine you have a schoolroom with 20 students in it and two students leave. Well, now there's, let's say, $10,000 less coming into the school. But you still need the same teacher, the same teacher's assistant. You need the same room. You need the same heater or air conditioner. You need the same, all the same facilities. And there isn't really a mechanism, as we understand it, that helps accommodate for, you know, when you lose part of your classroom, but you still have to teach that class. It would make sense if you lost 20 students, maybe one classroom at a time. But the way it actually works now, there isn't a way for the school to say, keep providing an interventionist or keep providing a mental health counselor. And we've been told by Superintendent Faust that they are still providing these services, but they're contracting them out to the county. And we just we know from these conversations that it's not the same when you don't have the resource in the building, like the anecdote that Stephanie Crable was talking about, where there was an interventionist who could come right into the classroom. So we understand the administration may be trying to put a good face on this, but there are serious cuts coming, and we know that those cuts are going to make a difficult situation even more challenging. Yes, and we do know, and the county is very proud of providing a significant amount of mental health therapists in the schools, And but we're hearing, again, those have wait lists. So here's Elizabeth Redenbaugh saying that we still need to look at this. If you're in crisis, you need help now. You cannot wait a month to get fit into somebody's schedule. Otherwise, things can go really wrong really fast. So again, can we figure out a way to eliminate these wait lists? That's something that the task force is trying to tackle now. And there are a lot of other recommendations this mental health subcommittee they presented to the task force put forward. They talked about having all the same trauma-informed training. It looks like they do different types of certifications and professional development amongst the schools, but it's not uniform, and they're saying to do that. Yeah. At the end of the day, we know what some of the ideas that the task force has put forward are. We see how they would supplement and help teachers do the work that they're doing right now. So I think an important question is, how much would it all cost and who would fund it? That's right. And here's Scott Wisnett saying their next meeting is in March, and he's trying to do this for his committee. 
we're going to get the data that goes behind these suggestions and work toward putting a dollar amount to these requests. What would it cost? But we know that with these looming cuts, we'll see what happens. I mean, the county has not said how much they're going to give the school district. That remains to be seen. But it looks like they're going with tightening the belt from the conversations I've seen thus far. We'll see what actually shakes out. Um There are two other committees, the Leadership Committee, which is headed up by CEO of the Chamber of Commerce, Natalie English. She talked about potentially trying to come up with some leadership program, maybe modeled off of Leadership Wilmington or Wilma to help support the district's leaders. And I talked to her recently through email and she said that she doesn't have any concrete ideas on the table right now. And then the community outreach is another subcommittee and they said that they were going to work on a comprehensive list of support services for these lower performing schools. And I think some of those lists already exist, but I think they're looking to see what's out there and what they can provide to these schools. Sure. And I can just say really briefly, when it comes to Leadership Wilmington, uh, we've known some people who have gone through that process. It is and networking opportunity. And one of the things that schools sometimes struggle with is building relationships with local organizations that could help support them. For one example, uh, Laney High School and Trask Middle School has a relationship with Lowe's Foods. Every time I go to the grocery store, there's a little chart on the chalkboard when you walk in that shows how much donations from shoppers have gone to those two schools. And that's a locally forged relationship. So that is one kind of thing that could come out of that kind of networking. And as far as community outreach, as you said, the county provides a lot of resources. There are a lot of resources in this community that some people don't know about, you know, free tax prep at UNCW or the county. And sometimes it's just a matter of letting people know. All right, well, we've got to take a quick break. But when we come back, I want to get into why there is this $10 million budget hole and how public schools can maybe compete a little bit better against charter schools and private schools that they're now in the market with. That's coming up in just a moment on The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman. Thanks for being with us. I'm here with my colleague, Rachel Keith. Rachel, thanks for being here. Thank you. We're talking about New Hanover County Schools Turnaround Task Force. We were talking about some of the ideas that have developed legs and are now real possibilities for dealing with some of the district's lowest performing schools. But there is a bigger issue, and that is a loss of revenue to public schools as they compete against charter schools and now private schools. And that's in part because of recent legislation that allows public money to go to private schools through something called opportunity scholarships. This is known as the backpack model of student funding, which from a conservative point of view basically says, if you pay taxes, your money goes to schools. So you should have the right to take your share of the education funding that comes from your taxes and spend it how you like it. You could go to a public school, you could get a charter waiver and go to a charter school, or you could take the cash and go to a private school. Obviously, that would cost more than the tuition at a charter school or a public school, but you get the idea. But that means now that public money is getting divided up in a way that is cutting the bottom line of public schools. And we're seeing that at our school here locally. 
people in the community are talking about this. I don't think this was on the docket to discuss at this January meeting, but Clifford Barnett is the mayor pro tem for the city of Wilmington, and he's on the task force, and he opened up this question. With the new legislation, have we given any thought to how it's going to affect our schools, especially with, I guess, folks that have resources and they want to take their kids out? So then we have Dr. Patrice Faison, who is the chief academic officer for the district, and she's also a big part of this task force, along with Stephanie Walker. And so she's saying that the public schools have to start selling themselves in this new reality. It's about telling our story and making sure people realize the opportunities we have in our public schools. I don't think sometimes um, they do. But it is a concern, but I think that's the best way that we can do is say, hey, if you go here to Ashley, you can get pharmacy tech now. Or we're going to have this um, virtual autopsy table at this school. So that is something that the team is working on. I mean, we are talking about serious amounts of money that are moving from the public sector to the private sector here. We don't know exactly how much because we're talking about human behavior. We can't predict exactly how many parents will take a child from a public school to a private school. But we've heard estimates of anywhere between $1.9 and $4 billion moving into private schools over the next decade. That's correct. And over the next two years, they're allocating about $250 million for that. Yeah. And so, you know, private schools advertise, charter schools advertise. And I think what Faison is getting at is that if we are going to be in a marketplace, public schools are going to have to compete like it's a marketplace. That's right. And here's Dr. Faison talking about our local competition scene. And we're just looking at public schools and charters, not private. I would ask parents to go and look at charter performance. They would be shocked. They're not doing what you think they're doing. So I would say go look at that performance. The money stays with them. So once we lose it, it's gone. And a lot of times, and I would say too, you'd be surprised of how many times a kid goes to a charter and then they're coming back. Because remember, a charter school does not have to keep you. So Faison is right. When we look at the county rankings, 12 elementary schools do, public schools do better than the next charter school, which is at rank 13, and that's Cape Fear Center for Inquiry. But if you look at the middle school, it does a little better. There are two middle schools that do better than CFCI. And then at the high school, there's not too much competition. What she's saying is, so they allocate the funds. Mainly, it's anchored after the 20-day count, the head count. And it's called average daily membership. And so that's their, their funding well, right? They have the count of how many students are actually in that building. And then what she's saying is they go to a charter school, but then they come back. And guess what? That funding does not come back with them. Right. So what you're saying is that a parent could send their kid to a charter school. And because their kid is there on that 20-day count, the charter school gets that public money. But if the charter school isn't, say, living up to the parent's expectations, the kid goes back to the public school. The public school is now on the hook to feed that kid, transport that kid, educate that kid, but the charter school keeps the money. And honestly, if we're talking about a marketplace, that's an unfair fight for public schools. And it is true that charters are not held to necessarily the same standards that public ones are. For example, they don't have to provide transportation necessarily, or um, meals, or they have different um, teacher certification 
things that they go through. So it is a difference. And there's also just a lot more public scrutiny and a lot more public accountability for public schools. I mean, hell, Rachel, that's your entire job sometimes. So That's correct, yeah. I thought this conversation was interesting. And this is between Natalie English, again, CEO of the Chamber of Commerce, and William Buster, who's the CEO of the New Hanover Community Endowment. Let's be clear, there are some charter schools that get created and they are delivering on their mission. Oh, yeah. Every yeah. charter school in Charlotte is delivering, or at least it was. I've been there for seven years, but it was delivering on its mission. And it wasn't affluent kids going to a charter school. This was a charter school in the middle of high poverty neighborhoods that was educating high poverty kids and doing it really well. Um, so, so let's be fair, charter schools can be unbelievably effective, mm-hmm. and some are not. Wow. Well, let, let, me, let me challenge Natalie on that. I think um, as a person who's funded charter schools all across the country, we're fighting a narrative. And I, I once told uh, a charter school leader who was going to go speak to Senate, to the U.S. Senate, uh, committee on this that they were going to go bash public schools and I said this is not a zero sum. I think what we have, what, what the issue is is that whoever you're talking to is the person who's going to tell you whether or not charter schools are great or whether or right. not public schools are great. Right. I, I think what we have to recognize is that we're talking about an educational mm-hmm. system and we need to make charter schools a part of the system. The fact that they don't have to do some of the things right. that Dr. Faison said, that's, that's an issue. Yep. Some of the things that we can say about, yes, but some, you know, so when we talk about issues with education, I am not going to put charter schools or public schools above one another. I think one of the, one of the keys though is that the data does say that they're not performing better than public schools. Right. Um, And we have to be clear about that. Now, I love that there's a charter school in New Orleans that I love, and I will personally advocate for it all day long, but that's a, that's a pearl in the midst of a whole bunch of nonsense. Um, and so I want us to always be, be measured in saying that the narrative that we're combating is that somebody, depending on who you're talking to, they're going to say the other thing is bad. So we wanted to play you that long clip of Buster talking about this because he's had, as he says, a lot of experience in providing philanthropic funding for charter schools. In fact, the endowment just recently funded Beacon Education to fund Spark Academy, which is a charter school here in Wilmington. But what Buster is saying is that, yeah, if you ask someone who's in the charter school world, they're going to tell you charter schools are great. And we know plenty of people who send their kids to charter schools and have had good experiences, but it needs to be a data-driven approach. It can't just be anecdotal because you can always find someone to say that the school that their kid goes to is great. Right. And it is interesting. I started doing this research because of what William Buster said, and it looks like historically public schools have outperformed charter schools, but they are catching up because I think because of the pandemic, That has pushed a lot of families to consider other models of schooling, for example, charter or private. And from I found this study from Stanford University, and it's done through the Center for Research on Education Outcomes. And this was published in 2023. And looking at 18 different states in the country, and North Carolina was included in this cohort, that year-to-year academic progress from 2015 to 2019, it says, quote, 
The typical charter school student international sample has reading and math gains that outpace their peers in the traditional public schools they would have otherwise attended. So we're starting to see them gain on public schools in this national sample. But it's a different story like we're going to talk about just looking at North Carolina alone and then again our county. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the School Digger Ratings, which is a website that breaks down sort of the performance of students at schools, you can pick a district and look at all the schools, including the charter schools. Those charter schools are not, they're not really gaining on public schools. So I think that gets back to Vason's point, is that there are lots of reasons that people would go to a charter or private school. And some public schools probably can't compete. If it's a $40,000 a year pipeline to an Ivy League school, that's probably not a student public school is going to win back. And if it's someone who's going to a charter school, maybe because the parents have a religious preference or that charter school really focuses on one specific area, say a STEM-focused charter school. Again, that's maybe somewhere that the public schools can't compete. But if it's just down to academic performance, what Faison is saying is like, hey, in addition to some of the cool programs we have, we are generating better student performance than these charter schools, whatever the charter schools are telling you, if you look at the data, it's a different story. Right. And if we look at the state analysis that was recently done in North Carolina, we are looking at some mixed results. It's it's basically, they're pretty similar right now, which is interesting. So for example, 27% of charter schools in our state received a school report card grade of an A or a B. And compare that to traditional public schools that got 23% of those received an A or a B. But if you looked at met or exceeded growth, public schools are doing a little better than the charters. So again, it's pretty interesting how you look at it from a national perspective, a state, and then our local scene right here. Yeah. So the last thing I'll say is definitely when it comes to competing in the marketplace, if you're a parent who's districted in one of Uh, New Hanover County's lower performing schools, then yeah, a charter school might seem like a real viable alternative. Or a a private. Or a private school. So there's still a lot of work to be done. That's one of the main reasons that they need to improve these schools, not just to improve, you know, the students' experience and the teachers' experience, but also because low performing schools drive students away. And that means holes in budgets. So what's coming next for the task force, Rachel? So they are going to meet in March, and actually this month was supposed to be a parent roundtable, but for different reasons, they couldn't schedule it, so it will be for March, and this should be mainly parents who their kids are going to technically these one of these seven low-performing schools that are designated by NCDPI, and what the parent would need to do is just talk to their principal about attending, and then they will select the parents from there. And so as we move on, it looks like these committees really narrow in on specific recommendations that the community should adopt. But again, we know that the school board and the county commission, that the buck stops with them. So, yeah, as always, ideas are great, but you need political will to implement them. All right. We need to take one more quick break. But when we come back, my colleague Rachel Keith and I are going to hear from some New Hanover County students about some of the thorny issues that the district is dealing with. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for joining us. I'm here with my colleague, Rachel Keith, and we've been talking about New Hanover County's Turnaround Task Force. 
And a lot of the issues that the task force deals with impact low-income schools. But really, at the end of the day, they're talking about what's best for students. But often in these conversations, we don't hear from students. So, Rachel, you sat down with two members of the Student Voice leadership team to get that perspective. Tell me a little bit about Student Voice and where these conversations were coming from. Yes, Student Voice became part of board policy in October of 2022 that this was a formal a student group that they were going to hear from. They don't get votes. They don't serve on committees, but they're supposed to advise and be engaged with the school board and the administration. And it's just a way to recognize their efforts and invite their voices into the conversation. And again, they don't make the decisions, but they're a part of the conversation. So I talked with Cassidy Thompson. She is a senior at Hoggard High School, and she's going to Duke next year to study English. And being a part of Student Voice, she said that she really has grown her communication skills, her writing skills, And being a leader, I mean, she's gotten a lot of experience with that. And Aparna Bulipala, I also spoke with her. She's a junior at Hoggard, and she wants to study environmental public policy um, in college. And she really wanted to gain also that leadership experience. And she was a part of Teen Court. And so she got introduced to, you know, real-life situations. And so she thought that Student Voice also had that connection to the real world leadership. So that's why they both joined. So one of the issues that Student Voice has weighed in on has been, I think it's fair to say, the controversial proposal for a new professional standards of conduct policy. Now, proponents of this say it's important to have rules on the books that make sure that we have a standard across all classrooms that we can hold teachers through so that they are not unduly pushing their personal beliefs, whatever those might be, on students. Critics of the policy say this could be weaponized and used to prevent teachers from going into the very real history of the United States that makes some people uncomfortable, but is certainly not unfactual. That's right. And so their first big undertaking of research was this policy. And specifically, it's Section Z, where it outlines very, very specific things that teachers cannot profess to believe in the classroom. But I think the issue that we're all trying to understand is, can you discuss this? Or is it just outwardly saying this is what you should believe and that's the end? So the the students were really concerned and, and wanted, and they were interested and they wanted to know more about this policy and how students thought about it. So here is Cassidy Thompson about their research on the, this section. Most students that were interviewed agreed with the intent of Section Z that, yeah, of course, like we want teachers to be inclusive and make sure they're being careful with their language when they're talking about these things. But I think a lot of the concern was um, just in teaching history and having to explain that some of these things did happen, just the concern with how the policy was written. So ultimately, the policy committee did hear from them, but they didn't 
really take their suggestions into consideration and move the policy on to a full board vote for next week. But the students said that they still are grateful for the experience that this whole process gave them. And here is Aparna. Even just like collecting this data was like such like a good learning experience, like being able to like read and analyze policy and understand its nuances and being able to sort of like communicate those to students while surveying them and also learning how to like present this information to the board in a respectful and informative manner. And these students really do, they're about to enter the real world, college, jobs. They need to start having these types of experiences. I will also say, you know, they are getting some real world experience of what it takes to disagree with people in a civil way, because this got pretty heated at one point during an earlier meeting when there was a discussion about whether or not student voice would be allowed to address the policy committee at all. Board member Josie Barnhart who heads the policy committee sort of made a substitute motion and said, instead of hearing from student voice, let's just dissolve the organization completely. I think a lot of young people, certainly me as a young person, might have reacted very badly to that. But I have to say Cassidy handled it with grace, especially when it came to the issue of whether or not their recommendations were going to be taken into account. It's totally up to them to make those decisions and to weigh the different perspectives that we have given them, because even students disagree about different things and different decisions affect them different ways, too. We're just trying to do our best to provide them with as much um, information and help that we can. So again, you have the students really taking the time, really diving in, trying to do a professional analysis of They interviewed over 60 middle and high school students and just presenting that to the board as is. And this policy, actually, this professional standards of conduct policy shows up in the context of heightened scrutiny of teachers and education and what are they learning and what are they talking about And what are they reading about in social studies and English classes? And so we have this last year, we had the stamped racism, anti-racism and you hearing. And that was almost a year of reporting for me um, on the evolution of this eventual book ban. And then in the prior years, I have covered Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson's Basically, he put out a report, and he's running for governor right now. There is liberal indoctrination going on in the state schools. And so I put this to Cassidy and Aparna, and and Aparna responded. I mean, I said, are you having this experience? Do you feel uncomfortable with some of your teachers and your classes and talking about some of these tough issues? I think it's like unfortunate that people like view teachers that way because I've had like nothing but like positive experiences with with like my social studies teachers and with my English teachers. The vast majority of them are like just here because they care about students and want to educate them. So a little more context here. A lot of this conversation about liberal indoctrination in the classroom started in 2020 during the pandemic, especially after students were sent home to learn remotely, where for a lot of parents, because they are busy and don't have the time to micromanage their kids' homework and look at the curriculum, for the first time, we're really seeing what their kids were learning on a day-by-day basis, you know, walking through the living room, seeing what was on the tablet or on the laptop. And we heard from a lot of parents. And it wasn't just conservatives concerned about liberal indoctrination. We heard a whole range of concerns where they thought material was too difficult or way too easy or too liberal or too conservative or history classes that, hey, they didn't mention this. Parents were getting a front row seat to the educational process 
a lot of them for the first time. And so I think it is fair to say that, yeah, there are probably cases where there was teachers who were too liberal, putting their opinions and foisting them on students. Probably happened with conservative teachers as well. But we put the question to State Senator Michael Lee during uh, the 2022 campaign. Did he think there was systemic liberal indoctrination? Did he think this was an organized process that was being done on purpose, coordinated amongst all schools? And he said no. He said, are there individual schools where it happens more? Yes. But is it systemic? He said no. And so I think that's the problem. It's, it's totally fine to have a complaint about one teacher going too far, you know, pushing their opinions on students. But it's another thing to demonize teachers in general. That's what has contributed to the place we're right now, where teachers are increasingly saying, like, do I even want to be this job? On top of all of the challenges, on top of the low pay and the difficult work, now I'm being called, you know, some kind of, you know, brainwasher by people. So it's interesting to hear from students what they're experiencing in that classroom. Yeah. And Cassidy conceded the point, as did uh, Aparna, that maybe these are isolated incidences. But throughout their educational history in New Hanover County schools, they have not seen this. And again, they are just two people. They are two students. But on the whole, I've done a lot of research on this. And It is interesting because what I see from the public call, I mean, some people don't even want a discussion of racism in our past. And that is the truth. And when you bring it up, maybe teachers are just talking about the history and and different perspectives on that. And just the idea of bringing it up is very controversial to some parents. And they are being very vocal about that. Yeah, I certainly I specifically heard from one parent that was upset that the history teacher was talking about Eugene Debs, who was a socialist, not telling the students that they should be socialist, just that they mentioned a socialist. And there's a real difference there between teaching a historical fact or about a historical figure and being a proponent of those ideologies. Yeah. And I think that's at the heart of a lot of these controversies is that teachers are exposing them to the wide range of Americans that we have in this country and people only want certain Americans talked about and not others. And so I did put it to Cassidy because Student Voice at an earlier meeting said that they wanted to do more research and one of those components were book bans. And these students have been trained to be very diplomatic. So she was very diplomatic in her answer. So that is something that our team is interested in researching more. But I think generally... Um, our, what our team has discussed is uh, we, I don't know, we, a lot of people didn't agree with um, the book being banned, but also, again, like we're, we don't represent all students. So again, you have that the students do care about this and they, they do value um, different perspectives in the classroom. And again, this was one author's perspective on race, the history of race relations in our country to the present. But she's saying their leadership team of about 25 students, it sounds like on the whole, they did not agree with this book ban. But again, it's not just about controversial issues that the students are looking at. They want to find ways to research student mental health. They want to look at a student communication hub to spread news about advanced placement courses or other district programs. So it's not just controversial topics that they want to look into. And I talked about this with both Aparna and Cassidy. And it's really interesting as a journalist and, you know, just people in general, we all have our personal beliefs, correct? But we have a job to do. And she saw it the same way as being a student leader. I do think it's like a little bit difficult to like sort of balance like your personal feelings with like the information that like you're presenting. But at the same time, it sort of has to be done. So I think we've done a good job of like being able to present the information as it is, even if it doesn't always align with our personal beliefs. 
And I can say what students have watched happen in their classrooms and in their districts over the last couple of years have been some of the most passionate, intense, and sometimes downright uncivil disagreements that I've seen in my career as a journalist. It's, it's certainly a place where people don't agree and they don't agree passionately. So I think that having some maturity and balance in that space uh, is commendable. Anyway, here's, here's Cassidy talking about what she's seen at the call of the audience. I think even just watching call the audience in um, the board meetings, you just see a lot, a lot of emotions there. Um, some of them valid, some of them like way over the top. And we just, we really don't want to be, we want to be a calm voice through the storm, um, just presenting the truth, but also in a way that helps build up our district leaders instead of tearing them down. So you can see the students, they are getting training on being careful with their language and being careful about the way that they present their research. But they know that their voice is valuable. And the board's committee assignments just came out and Josie Barnhart was the chair, but now it's going to be vice chair Melissa Mason and Stephanie Craybill and Pat Bradford board members. They are going to stay on this committee. So that'll be interesting to see moving forward. And I did put this to Aparna and Cassidy because Josie Barnhart in the past, she's had several comments on the record that said, well, we need to consider more parental voices and that or we need to consider this group before the students and the students are just not the end all be all of the voices in our district. And, you know, here's what Cassidy had to say teachers, parents, um, district leaders, all of them are very important in making educational decisions. But I, I do think students are the primary stakeholders of our education. Um, we are the ones that education is for. Um, we're the ones going through the school day. So I do think our voice is really important and should be really important to listen to while making decisions. And Cassidy says that they really hope to continue to provide the board and the district with research that they do, well-formulated opinions or arguments presented, or maybe it's a poll that they did that is, the poll is what it is, correct? And they just want to be able to present that. And then they, they are really excited about what's to come. They, again, want to research things like overcrowding in schools, how this district does class rank. We've already talked about book bans or reading materials and we um, talked about their ideas around student mental health and this communication hub that they'd like to work on. All right. Well, Rachel, I expect to hear a lot more from these young student leaders and, of course, a lot more about the Turnaround Task Force. But for now, uh, thank you for your reporting. We'll have links to your articles from this week on the show page. And thanks for being here. Thank you. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition of the Newsroom. Thanks to my colleague, Rachel Keith. And to Cassidy Thompson and Arpana Bulipala from Student Voice. A special thanks to Scott Wisnett from the Turnaround Task Force for the many conversations he's had with us. And thanks to the task force as a whole for allowing Rachel Keith to really be a part of their conversations and do this reporting. Thanks as well to our technical team, Ken Campbell and Mark Brady. If you missed any part of this episode, you can find it at whqr.org or as a podcast, pretty much anywhere you can find podcasts. If you have thoughts or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Schockman. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom. <laughs>